All right, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Ephesians chapter number 5. Chapter number 5, and as you're turning, uh, just one quick announcement. Again, I mentioned this past week about uh, our 2019 uh, budget summary sheet out there in the lobby. Uh, those are still there, and please avail yourself of that resource. Uh, last week, I failed to mention that that is going to serve as our, the beginning of our two-week notice of our members meeting. So we're one week into that, so just as a reminder, next Sunday, we will have an official members meeting where, where we will review the 2018 finances, and uh, then obviously present and vote on our 2019 proposed budget. So uh, mark that on your calendar directly after the service next week. We'll have a, uh, a quick members meeting. Again, we're excited about what the Lord has done in 2018. Um, certainly, uh, the number of zeros in the bank account of a church is by no means our measure of success. Uh, but that being said, God has richly used you, uh, the members of Liberty Hills Bible Church, to uh, over and abundantly uh, provide for the needs of the church and to further our gospel reach in our community. And so for that, as elders, we want to say, uh, again, just a very uh, humble and, and gracious thank you for your faithful giving and support of the ministry at Liberty Hills Bible Church. And we're excited uh, to continue to cast some vision for the direction and uh, purpose of the church. And so uh, we'll give you some, some updates on what the Lord did at our elders retreat uh, just a few weeks ago, and we're excited to share uh, much more about that. So again, you've got your Bibles open to Ephesians chapter number five. And um, again, I was, I was a little bit struggling last week with uh, just... The, uh, the perception that I needed to keep going, and I'm thankful for Andy and Dave just saying, hey, you know, take, take the time that you need and slow down. As, as we got into these first six verses, um, they really serve as the foundation for this final stretch through the book of Ephesians, chapters five and six. When you consider what Paul is addressing here in these first six verses of Ephesians chapter number five, you'll see quickly the connection and the purpose and the role that it will make as we start addressing the application of these verses to imitate God and to walk in love in the context of these biblical relationships. And uh, certainly we'll see the uh, relevance of these verses as we get into chapter 6 as, as Dave Welch takes us through the whole armor of God and us considering spiritual warfare and, and our role in that. And so these, these first few verses of understanding God's purpose in our life as new creatures, the old man has passed away. Behold, all things have become new to put off the old man and to put on the new man and to consider that we are now to imitate God and to walk in love. That involves us having a healthy and biblical understanding of our sin and the dangers of sin and its role in our life for us to put it off and to put on Christ's likeness. And so I hope you are starting to get that understanding and for us to have a healthy view of ourselves and the finiteness of our mind and the weaknesses of our flesh and therefore how much we desperately need God's grace, not just for salvation, but for every breath that we take, every moment that we live, every day that we pursue by his grace to be more and more like the image of his 
Son. And so the title of last week's message was Walking with Purpose. We're going to keep that title and that focus, and we're going to launch into part two of, of Walking with Purpose this morning. So if you remember verses with me, verses one and two, Paul tells us first that we can walk with purpose in this world by what? Imitating God and walking in love. And then as we transition to our second point, we saw in verses three through six that Paul tells us secondly that we can walk with purpose in this world by avoiding worldliness, by avoiding worldliness. I'm gonna give us a big idea to hopefully wrap our minds around and kind of guide our direction this morning. The big idea of verses four through six is this, because the plight of our sin is universal and the consequences of those sins are eternal, we need the saving grace of God to radically change us from sons of disobedience to beloved children of God. All right, I, I want to read that just one more time and, and just anchor down on these truths as we work our way through verses four through six. Because the plight of our sin is universal, meaning what? We are all plagued with this a curse of sin, right? Uh, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Because the plight of our sin is universal and the consequences of those sins are eternal, meaning what? They must be paid for. There is a penalty for that sin. We need the saving grace of God to radically change us from sons of disobedience, who we were before Christ, to beloved children of God, who we are in Christ. So again, let's read our text this morning. We'll open in prayer. Ask the Lord to bless our time together. Let's start reading in verse number one. We'll read one through six here. Paul says, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Verse three, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of, of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Why is Paul this morning so concerned about calling out these specific sins for his readers? I think it's because he wants them to remember and to reflect and to anchor their heart and their mind and their relationship for eternity in nothing other than the grace of God. Let's open a word of prayer. Father, we thank you this morning that you are God, that you are on your throne, that you are sovereign, and that you have providentially gathered your church together this morning to hear from your word that is inspired and inerrant, that is quick and powerful, that is sharper than any two-edged sword. It is like a hammer that breaks up the hard heart of men. And so, Father, I pray that you would allow your spirit to do that work in our heart, that we would lay aside every sin and the weight that clings so closely to us, and that we would look to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith this morning, desiring to know you more and to be changed, to be set apart more today 
than we were yesterday, to walk more closely in the footsteps of Christ and to be conformed into the image of your son, Jesus Christ. So Father, I pray that you would, you would do that work. I cannot do that work. There's no words that I can share other than the life-giving words of your scriptures that can change the heart of, of men. And so I pray that you would do that, Father. The word would go out and it would accomplish its purpose, that it would have its will and its way. We would get out of the way and allow your word to do that, that work that needs to be done. Father, guard my heart, guard my words, and even prepare, even this morning, those that are here to, to prepare their hearts that we would be attentive hearers of your word, ready and willing to obey it. We ask these things in your name. Amen. Amen. If you'll remember, I finished last week with this verse out of Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30, where Christ says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Is that true this morning? Is that true this morning? It is. As we consider these groupings of sins, sexual immorality, impurity, filthiness, crude joking, does that reality of Matthew chapter number 11 of what Christ provides for us, is it sometimes difficult for us to believe that truth in the moment of our failure? Yes, it is. And so this morning, as we work our way through Ephesians chapter number five, verses four through six, we want to find an anchor of hope. And we want to remember that Christ has already won the victory because as we sang this morning, it is what? It is finished. Christ has defeated sin, death, and hell. And although sexual immorality and filthiness and impurity and crude joking and all the, the plagues of this world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes and the pride of life, although they are heavy and although they are discouraging, we have hope because we have a Savior who has defeated all of that. And so this morning, that is what we want to anchor our hearts and our minds on as we work our way through these, again, categories of sin. But that aside... We need to come to the sin that we see in our life as we look into the word as a mirror, as a glass, and we see the imperfections of our own spiritual life against the word of God. We need to address and approach our sin in a biblical and healthy manner, understanding that it has grave effects in our growth, in our relationship with the Lord. And so Paul wants us to raise the bar in our understanding of sin this morning. He wants us to understand that it is nothing to play with. He wants us to have a short sin account in our relationship with the Lord so that when we see sin present in our life, we cast it away quickly with a sense of urgency and intentionality. I don't know if any of you know of the great Puritan preacher, John Owen. If you haven't read any of his works on sin, I encourage you to do so. He uh, has a very unique and incredibly biblical perspective of the dangers of sin and its effects onto the Christian life. John Owen, in 
approaching this topic of sin, he says this to the Christian. He says, do you mortify? Do you make it your daily work? Be always at it while you live. Cease not a day from this work. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. How many of you have ever heard that quote from John Owen? Be killing sin or it will be killing you. All right, nobody has. All right. Uh, th that's an incredibly uh, great reminder of the effect of sin. Right? And we're going to walk through these categories of sin as Paul lays them out. And I want us to take that type of approach to it. That sin has an incredibly negative effect on our relationship with the Lord. Therefore, approach it in that manner. You see, friends, we have been bought with a price this morning. And Paul is now calling us to live and to walk in that reality. There's no such thing as cheap grace. Grace that was freely given of no merit of our own. So because of that reality, Paul is urging us to embrace the relationship that we have been given in Christ and to embrace this idea of progressive sanctification, becoming less like the world and more like Christ. So again, as we remembered in chapter one, verse number four, to walk in a manner worthy of that sacrifice that Christ made on our behalf. Our behavior, yours and mine, must be what? Consistent with our identity as God's chosen people. So that's where we, we finished last week. So Paul, again, moves into the second grouping of sins. In verse number four, he says, let there be no what? Filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking. He addresses what? The sins of the tongue. The particular words that Paul uses here also talk about these sexual connotations that can be attached to the speech that comes out of our words. It is, it is filthy. It is foolish talk. It is crude joking. It has no value, no purpose, no role in the life of a what? Redeemed follower of Christ. You see, when Christ truly changes somebody, from the inside out, there are effects of that inward change that show a result of that inward work. It's going to show itself in how we speak, how we interact, how we love and relate to others in the context of the body of Christ and in the world. So he starts with what? Filthiness. Have you ever come across somebody that just accidentally got filthy? I guess it's possible, but more than likely, if you have a vocation or a job that is going to involve some manual labor and you're going to get dirty, you kind of know it's coming. Therefore, you prepare with the appropriate personal protection, right? From an equipment perspective, you got goggles, you got rubber boots, you got the appropriate clothing to be able to get through that mess. You don't accidentally get filthy. You know it's, it's coming, right? Think of uh, one of my kids' favorite animals in that, uh, that song about uh, Old MacDonald had a farm. They love when we hit the what? The pig. They love making that noise, right? I'm not going to do it for you. I'll, I'll save that for you. Okay, I'll do it. Right, that was bad. That was a bad pig. Somebody do, kids, do me a pig noise. There we go. Thank you. All right. My kids love it when we get to that part of the song, right? But pigs love to get what? Filthy. And they love to wallow in some mud. Right, if my dad was here, he'd be disappointed. I usually have to say Waller, right? 
That's really how you say it. It's not wallow, it's waller. Pigs love to wallow in mud. Why? Because that's who they are. That is their nature to go wallow in mud. Um, I can remember growing up in the country, we actually had a pig once. Um, we don't have a pig anymore. Uh, I'm sure you can imagine what we did with that pig, right? Um, but I can remember raising that pig just from a little pig, and man, it was dirty. And mom would have me go out there and cool it off in the summer, and I'd hose that thing off. Man, that pig would look just spick and span. Right? There wasn't a spot of mud on that pig. And the second that I got done hosing that pig off, what did it do? It ran back to that mud and started wallowing that mud all over again. Why? Because they enjoy the mud. It is their nature. It's what they do. They enjoy being filthy. In a similar sense, the person who is acting in outright defiance to God's moral standard of living and is choosing to live in a manner that would be described as filthy has no place in the life of a Christian. Why? Because it is not our nature any longer to enjoy the filthiness of the world. We have put that off. It has been paid for with Christ's blood. Therefore, don't pursue those things anymore. Put them off. Paul goes on to say what? He mentions foolish talk. This has the idea of nonsensical talk that emerges from ungodly behavior. When I'm engaged in the filthy behavior of the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is that going to affect my speech? Is that going to affect what I think about and ultimately what I talk about with others? Absolutely. We might call this in our day locker room talk or shop talk. It's inappropriate. It's worthless speech, again, that has no eternal value. That's why Paul said in a similar letter to the church at Colossae, he says what? If you've been risen with Christ, do what? Seek the things that are above. James speaks to the reality of the tongue and its effect in the life of an individual. Chapter 3, verses 5 through 12, he says, So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of what great things. How great a force is set ablaze by such a small fire, and the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of, excuse me, of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives and, and a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. Friends, do we understand the devastating effects that our tongue can make in the relationships that God has brought into our life? Paul, in this second grouping of sins, is tackling the topic of our tongue and our speech. And he's saying, if you've been saved, 
if you've experienced the grace of God in your life, if you are desiring to be imitators of God and to walk in love, your speech should show forth that desire. Your speech should be changed. Paul goes on I, in this, similar to the way that he did in this first grouping of sins. He puts these sins in perspective by what? Qualifying them. He says that they are what? They are out of place. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. They don't make sense. They don't fit. These actions in the life of a chosen and beloved child of God should be like a square peg in a round hole. It just is never going to work. So friends, this morning, consider your speech. What is the fruit of, of your tongue? What is the fruit of your lips? It's how you speak and, and the tone that you use and the disposition and the body language that you address your wife and your spouse and your children and those in your sphere of influence, is it representative of the change that Christ has made in your life? Your speech matters. Have you been on the receiving end of the negative effects of somebody's quick-witted tongue? Have you been on the receiving end of a tongue lashing where somebody is giving you a piece of their mind? Can you remember the scars and the pain and the hurt and the wounds that those words caused in your own life and the life of someone else? Should we take seriously our speech in relation to our growth and our ability to imitate God and walk in love? Absolutely. So it is out of place. So how then are we doing with this second group of Sins. Do we find ourselves joining in or at best remaining silent when these things are exposed in the workplace, at school, or in our interactions with the lost? How are we approaching our stewardship of our speech? So that's the negative. In contrast, Paul gives us the first positive that we've seen since verses 1 and 2. He goes on to say what? They are out of place, but... Or however, instead, let there be what? Thanksgiving, Paul says. Let there be thanksgiving. This is a great word, and it almost, if we're not careful, seems like it's kind of out of place. It's like, well, where'd that come from? I think when it comes to this word thanksgiving, we kind of have a very basic holiday-like understanding of thanksgiving. This word is, is powerful. Think of everything negatively that Paul has just discussed. Sexual immorality, impurity, filthiness, crude joking. And what are we to combat that with? Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving is an incredible resource that the Spirit uses in the life of a believer to take us out of darkness and into light. What should the speech of us as individual followers of Christ and collectively as the body of Christ, what should we be known for? Thanksgiving. The question is, how do we verbally demonstrate that we are imitating God and walking in love from early in this chapter? 
We demonstrate that by speaking words of thanksgiving. So what is thanksgiving, right? That's kind of an important question if we're supposed to, in contrast, to put on thanksgiving. What is thanksgiving? Thanksgiving, really, at the heart of it, is worship. Right? Thanksgiving is, is worship. It is praise. It is adoration. It is recognizing God's person and work in and through your life and simply testifying of those realities. Friends, think about it. When you've been in, I'll just call it for lack of better words, the depths of despair, overcome by the weight of your sin, the guilt and the shame and the failure is weighing heavy, that burden is weighing heavy on your shoulders in your life. Have you ever noticed what Thanksgiving does to your state of mind and your person and your disposition and your demeanor to take you out of failure and to see the hope that you have in Christ? Thanksgiving typically is the first catalyst that the Spirit uses to remind us of who we are. What we've been given in Christ and what resources we have at our disposal in His Word and in the body to not stay here, but to take steps towards our relationship with the Lord. Again, maybe you've found yourself in a little bit of a funk spiritually. Maybe you're fighting that besetting sin, you're caught in, in the entanglements of this world, the cares of this world. Maybe you're in the mindset of a heavy trial that you just are still stuck in the why me? And by His grace, you intentionally pause and you look for areas in your life to be thankful for. And you verbally acknowledge them to the Lord, reminding your spouse, speaking that truth, speaking the gospel of thanksgiving and worship and praise into your own life to fight away the temptation and, and the snares of the devil in your flesh. Maybe in your prayer time you Again, you spoke those back to the Lord, or maybe you found yourself meeting up with another friend or a covenant member, and you just shared those things with them. Thanksgiving, words of thanksgiving. Did it not do something to your walk with the Lord? Did it not do something to, to mend the pain of your failure? Did it not remind you that, again, it is finished and that greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world? Words of thanksgiving take us off the circumstances of this world and give us the hope of eternity to live a life that is pleasing to the Lord, to imitate God and to follow his commands. Does it not change, again, how you approach the world, the cares of this world? Does it not change how you approach the trials that you're currently feeling does it not change your attitude and your thinking and how you approach others in the context of the body of Christ and in this world? It changes how we think. Friends, Thanksgiving should be on the tip of our tongues. Why? Because we have the most to be thankful for. Andy talked about hope this morning. He talked about the lack of hope that he had before he found Christ, and before Christ found him, I should say. And in that drawing of Andy to the foot of the cross by the Holy Spirit of God, it was there that Andy found what? Hope. He found salvation. He found forgiveness. 
He found redemption. He found reconciliation between God and himself through Christ. Is that something to be thankful for? Friends, Christians in this world that we live in can be the most unthankful people. They can be the most grumpy. They can be the most irritable. They can be the most discontent and dissatisfied. Why? Because of the world, because of politics, because of some current events, because of some trend in the news, because of some economic status that doesn't favor our 401k, whatever it is. Right? We can be the most unthankful people in those circumstances. Steal and rob our joy. What does that do? It snuffs out our light. It snuffs out our effectiveness. It snuffs out ultimately the glory of God in this world. This is why we exist as the church, the body of Christ, to build each other up in love and to shine. To be a precursor of the kingdom of God for all eternity right here on earth. It's the church. It's us. And we have much to be thankful for in Christ this morning. Thankfulness. Instead of hearing, observing, and seeing the incredible transformation, what does the world often observe as the speech of the church? Murmuring, complaining, backbiting, prejudices, judgment, and an inconsistent and hypocritical life. You ever had those things thrown into your face in conversations with the lost? You think how we speak in our speech and our thankfulness or the lack thereof, you think it impacts the glory of God in this world? Absolutely. So the question is this, has that behavior been damaging to the witness and the testimony of the body of Christ? It has, and Paul knows that. That is why he's so emphatically calling us to imitate God and walk in love. Simple question, are you known as a thankful person? Paul says, we should be if we truly know Christ. So Paul now in this text here will transition. He transitions these final couple verses by giving us two explicit warnings to those that are actively participating in and practicing the above mentioned sins. The first warning is this. Paul points his readers attention to this, that those who habitually practice these sins will not inherit the kingdom of Christ and God. Let's read it. Verse number five. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral and impure and who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Wow. That's... That's a pretty big statement, isn't it? Will not inherit the kingdom of Christ and God. So I want to help us in our interpretation and understanding. When we see some of these uh, statements like this in Scripture, it's important for us to note what Paul is saying and what Paul is not saying. And these big Broad brushing statements like will not inherit the kingdom of God. What does that mean? What is Paul saying? Paul is saying this, that these sins have what? They have consequences. He is saying this, that these sins that he mentioned, these category of sins, they are not representative of a new life in 
Christ. What did we just learn in chapter 4, verses 22 through 24? To put off again your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and be what renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So Paul is saying that in order to imitate God and walk in love, there must be a change in our living, in our conduct, and in our behavior. And that change has come about and is only realized because of God's grace in our life. It is our nature to pursue these sins. It is our flesh it is our nature. It is our identity before Christ. And although we are changed, we are renewed, we are conformed to the image of his son, we still have the flesh here in this world. I don't know about you, but I'm so looking forward to that day where we will experience that glorified body in heaven, where we will be free from, from the stranglehold of this sin and this flesh and this body. But we can experience victory. The chains have been broken. We have been bought off the slave box of sin and we have been changed to put on the new man and created in, in righteousness, right? So what is Paul saying? He's saying that sin has consequences, that we have victory and we can walk and imitate God and we can walk in love. Paul is saying that our life, how we live, is the best assurance that we have this side of eternity that we truly believe what we say about ourselves. And if we say we are a Christian, but we are habitually giving ourselves over to non-Christian ways of thinking and acting, Paul says, I should strongly question the validity of my faith. That's not inappropriate or unbiblical judging. That's the reality. That if I, am, if I say I'm a Christian, if I say I'm a Christ follower, my life is going to give evidence of that. This behavior, the sexual immorality, the impurity, the covetousness, the filthiness, the foolish talk, the crude joking, they are not just unbecoming of a title of Christian or Christ follower, but rather it demonstrates that the transformation of the mind, heart, and life has never really taken place. And that, my friend, is a big warning for us to consider. So what is Paul not saying? Paul is not saying, or Paul is not advocating for a works-based salvation here. Right? We've just gone through chapters 1 and 2. I'll remind you, chapter 2, verses number 8 through 10, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not... Your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast, but we are his what workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should what? Walk in them. We see this theme of walking all the way through the book of Ephesians. What Paul is advocating for here is a struggle. A struggle by God's grace to keep fighting sin, to keep scratching and clawing towards walking in the Spirit. Paul, in his letter to the church at Colossae, again, addresses the same topic, which, again, you look at, I'm going to read these verses in just a few moments, and, and there's a lot of just word for word. Why do you think Paul would say one thing to the church at Ephesus, and he would say the exact same thing to the church at Colossae? 
You think it's probably because the human nature and these categories of sin are universal for every man, for every woman, for every child that is present here this morning that will be present for all of mankind. Sin is a universal in this life. It is a constant. We will always be plagued with this sin nature. Paul knows that the plight of our sin is universal and the consequences of those sins are eternal. So he says in chapter 3, verses 5 through 10 of Colossians, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Put to death. Paul says, don't just smack it around. Don't just give it a black eye. Don't just say, hey, you know what? If you could just kind of take a, see it on the back burner for a while and I kind of need to do some good godly things for a bit, but, you know, hey, you can still stay present. You can still hang around. You can still rent out that, that back room in the corner of my heart. Saying you can kind of stick around. I, we've got it under control. It's not that big of a deal. I can handle it. Paul says, he says, no, he says what? Put it to death. He calls his readers to deal a death blow to sin in their life. To don't play around with it because there are dangers of sin. So take it out. Don't play around. Don't injure it. Don't hurt it. Put it to death. Put what to death? What is earthly in you? Sexual morality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Does this sound familiar? In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Does that sound like Paul's call for them to imitate God and to walk in love and to be mindful that they will not inherit the kingdom of God and that the wrath of God is coming against this behavior and this conduct and this nature of sin? So Paul moves on to this second warning. The wrath of God is coming. All right, let's read verse number six. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. So before Paul dives into the actual warning, he gives us a pre-warning to the real warning, that the wrath of God is coming. But before that, what does he say? Let no one deceive you. This is interesting. Let no one deceive you with what? Empty words. This indicates that there were some in their midst, either unbelieving Gentiles or more, more likely actual members of the church, that were propagating a cheap grace view of Christianity in the church at Ephesus. They refused to take sin seriously in their own life and in the life of others. 
Friends, are there some even in our day that would like us to excuse away sin or redefine God's moral standard in our day, in our culture, in our society? Absolutely. There's an attack on God's definition of marriage between one man and one woman. There's an attack on God's design and purpose and how gender is expressed in the Bible as only male and female. This all rolls up ultimately to an attack on what? Human life itself. Last week we acknowledged the sanctity of Human Life Sunday. What is the role and purpose of that? That the sanctity of every human life, both born and unborn, is creating the image of God and therefore worth protecting, worth pursuing, worth loving. Our culture today has no care or concern for these matters. And as such, Paul warns them that the wrath of God is coming. Friends, this is not just a problem of the world or the lost or those outside of the church. These progressive and liberal, or can we say sinful ideas, have crept into our churches. We've seen the headlines, different denominations, different segments of the church caving in on the pressures of the world to redefine Scripture of what God clearly states is black and white. But to be vigilant, but to be watchful. Don't be deceived by empty words. Paul saw this in his day, and we certainly see it in ours. Therefore, Paul says, let no one deceive you. Why? Because they're just that. What is the quality of their words? They are they're empty. They have no value. They have no worth. They have no role in the life of a believer. I can't help but think about Romans 1 in connection to this passage. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress what? The truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world the things that have been made so that they are without, what, excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened, claiming to be wise. They became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever, amen. Friends, there is a stark, serious, and sobering reality that the wrath of God is coming. That is not fire and brimstone preaching, that is truth. That is a reality that the wrath of God is coming. Towards who and towards what? Towards the sons of disobedience. Those with whom the wrath of God is coming and those who will not inherit the kingdom of God are by nature what? Sons of disobedience. 
which in the context of Paul's writing here in Ephesians refers to whom? Those who have not been redeemed. Their mind, their heart, their life has never experienced the grace and the mercy of God. And get this, friends. Paul even indicates in this letter that some of those people may have even been members of this church. They were the ones that were seeking to deceive them by their empty words. That there are tares among the wheat. There are wolves in sheep's clothing. Right? We, we learned about some of these things in our recent series through the Gospel of John. This type of person may have been caught up in the community of God, but they never really knew God. They may have been caught up in the movement of God in their day-to-day, but they have never truly been moved by God in a relationship with Him. They may have been caught up in the idea of, of a new religion that is countercultural to the establishment of their day, but they never really got that it wasn't about a religion. It was about a relationship. They were missing the mark. They were still lost. They were still children and sons of not God, but of disobedience. And so they continued to pursue over and over and over their true nature, their true person. Friends, this is a sobering reality to us, and, and I cannot go through this passage and these warnings without drawing us to the gospel and making an evangelistic plea for us to consider our life, to consider our standing before God. Do I really know him? And more importantly, does he really know me? Is my name written in the Lamb's book of life? And friend, the beauty of that is that when that truly happens, we are, we are always saved once we are saved and no man can pluck us out of his hand. But friends, the deceitfulness of our sin can do much, right? The heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. Who can know it? I'm thankful that God in his sovereignty allowed this letter and the whole of scripture to be preserved thousands of years later and that you and I right here, right now, have an opportunity to read, to hear, and to study these words and as a result to consider our ways. Now as we seek to bridge this text right here, verses four through six, as we seek to bridge that from their day to ours, the serious and sobering reality is extended to us. Friends, consider Matthew 7, 21 through 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Serving as an elder, serving as a deacon, as a Sunday school teacher, as a faithful member to do the work of church does not save us. Remember, the big idea of our text this morning was what? Because the plight of our sin is universal and the consequences of these sins are eternal. We need the saving grace of God to radically change us from the sons of disobedience to beloved children of God. So the question is this, has God done that work in your life, sir? Ma'am, child, 
Every boy and girl in here, do you know Christ as your Lord and personal Savior? And the beauty of the Gospel is this, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. And this morning, He wants us to understand that all our sin is heavy and it's discouraging and it is a weight. We can have freedom from that in Christ. Do you know Jesus? Have you received that gift of salvation? If not, the warning is clear. If you don't know Christ and these, the nature of sin as expressed here in these first few verses, if that's who you are and that's what you pursue, you will not inherit the kingdom of God and the wrath of God is coming because your nature is still a son of disobedience. For those here this morning that do know Christ, the message is clear. We pray for God's grace for our lives to exemplify what? Obedience. Are we going to be perfect in that obedience? No. But our prayer is this, that when we fail and we don't see that obedience and we see that sin nature rearing its ugly head and again, that we can put to death once again what is earthly in us. And by His grace... He will use his word, his spirit, and the body of Christ that is fitly joined together. He will use all those things to draw us back into fellowship so that we can be who God has called us to be, imitators of God himself and those who put on display his love and his mercy for all the world to see. Friends, this morning, are we, by God's grace, walking with purpose? Let's close our eyes and bow our heads this morning. We're going to transition now to our communion time. And we're going to close in a word of prayer and Andy is going to lead us in in a song. We're going to observe communion, the Lord's table, which represents His body and His blood. And we have an opportunity this morning to do what? To consider to reflect, to ponder, and to prepare our hearts to receive communion in a worthy manner. So Father, I pray this morning that everybody that's here would consider their standing before you. As a lost son of disobedience, I pray that today would be the day of salvation. For those that know Christ and are a beloved, chosen child of God, I pray that we would understand the importance of putting off our old man and putting on the new man and pursuing you, imitating you, and loving you, walking in that love. Father, I pray this morning as we come to the table that, sure, we would celebrate the work that you have done and that freedom that the chains are broken, but we would also come to this table with the sober mindset, understanding that that work is, although it's finished, is never really done, as we need to preach the gospel to our heart to progressively, day by day, become more like you until we get to worship you and fellowship with you for all eternity in heaven. We thank you that you have won the battle, that the victory is yours, that all Satan has bruised your heel, you have crushed his head. And there's hope today 
because of an empty tomb. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.